everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars. I'm Randy Cardoon. Everybody has a car story. Just a reminder to subscribe to our iTunes page. We'd love a review and a rating as well. And if you're listening on SoundCloud, give us a like. And if you'd like, leave a message. Also, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now check us out on YouTube. When you think of car museums here in Southern California, we think of the Peterson Museum, the result of the late car magazine publisher Robert Peterson's idea to have classic and iconic cars from a California perspective in a building on the Miracle Mile here in Los Angeles. Leslie Kendall is the curator of the museum, which underwent a massive remodel both inside and out a little over a year ago. So, Leslie, do you ever stop and think to yourself how great your job for an avowed car guy is? Randy, the day doesn't go by that I'm not grateful for what I do and that I don't step back once or twice and think, man, this is really good stuff. Uh, but by the same token, I consider it a gigantic responsibility because everybody wants to do what I do and I better be doing a good job. Otherwise, they, somebody else will swoop right in there. So let's qualify this a little bit. Your official job title is? I'm the chief curator of the Peterson Automotive Museum. And for those who don't know, and I mean, they're car people, but they may not know what a curator is. What is that? Well, curator literally, the word means keeper, but what I'm in charge of essentially is the collection, the content of the collection, and the uh, interpretation of the collection and the message that we uh, send out with, our, with the objects that we have. And the collection changes, too, because, uh, like, you, you started uh, the new collection, what was it, been? it's been about a year? Yeah, um, we make a distinction between a collection and exhibition. The Peterson Automotive Museum has in its permanent collection over 300 cars that tell all different stories about the automobile. Uh, on exhibition at any one time, there are 120, 130 cars that people will see, plus another 100, 120, 130 in the vault. Uh, those cars, we uh, we switch out and we rotate them you know, pretty frequently. And we also go into the collect car community to borrow cars for exhibitions. So you have a vault. We have a storage vault. It's kind of where we keep our reserve collection of vehicles. Very few museums can put everything they have uh, on display at any one time, and that includes us. Wow. So how many cars do you think are in the vault? In the vault right now, probably about 200. That's a big vault. It's a it's a big vault. Well, it's you know it's a testament to Mr. Peterson's genius. He bought a disused department store that took up an entire city block on Miracle Mile in Los Angeles. So part of that uh, purchase was an attached parking structure that could house one thousand cars, and we've kind of taken over the entire subterranean uh, portion of that to, uh, to store to store the vehicles that aren't on display. That's kind of neat. And for those people who have uh, been to the Peterson, uh, sometimes you give tours of that, correct? We give tours multiple times daily. It's it's uh, an added uh, benefit. People can come in and, and sign up for a tour. All sorts of great cars. We're going to talk about the Peterson a lot more here in a little bit. Leslie, I'm always interested, and in, let's go back to the beginning because we got to start somewhere. Um, <laughs> you grew up, as I understand, in Southern California, and you got into cars how? I mean, what do you remember from, let's say, your parents' cars? What were they driving? Well, what's interesting, uh, I don't remember this, but as a newborn, I was driven home from the hospital in a 57 Ford Thunderbird that my father had bought new. Um, of course, I wasn't that was, it was a couple years old by the time I came around, but uh, then he traded it in on a, a 1961 Comet station wagon, and it just uh, kind of took it from there. So how did you know that? Just looking at pictures? Uh, yeah, just looking at pictures. Um, I was also, I, I came, I, I have to tell you, I really don't know how 
I came by my automotive interests. But what I can tell you is I was the only student in kindergarten who knew what a Bugatti was. <laughs> okay. You, you, I could just imagine you using it in a sentence yeah, well, at, at that age. I was, you don't have to, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy, though. I mean, where did you learn a Bugatti at kindergarten? I have to tell you, I don't know, but I was always fascinated with cars. My mother said that whenever we went somewhere, I would just watch the cars go by. And, and you know, I look back and I now I think it's, you know, a fascination with motion through space and, and how people look and how cars uh, transform, uh, can transform somebody's personality. You look at somebody in a car and you go, oh, you know, that's, that person is like this and I bet he or she does this. And, you know, cars betray certain personality traits. And, and back in the day, I mean, part of it was that they changed the look of the car every year. I mean, you'd sit there and you're with your parents in the car and, and drive it on the freeway. You could almost tell point to a car and start saying, okay, that was a 58 Plymouth or that's da, 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 da. Yeah. It was the uh, whole planned obsolescence that Harley Earl is so famous for the, the chief stylist of General Motors. Um, it, you got to make it look different. Otherwise people won't want to buy one. You got to make it different than last year's model. You got to make it newer, better, longer, lower, wider, you name it. Mm-hmm. Is that what killed American cars in the eighties and nineties? Um, well, I think there was a lack of differentiation. I think uh, a lot of manufacturers tried to rationalize production by making everything a little bit uh, kind of like everything else. And um, uh, I think quality also had a, a heck of a lot to do with it. And there was started, started to become a, um, a keener social awareness about uh, smog issues and the n- environment and, and such. And also insurance rates started to go up and it just wasn't fun anymore for a lot of people. It just dawned on me. You said 57 Thunderbird is what you came home in. Correct. They had no rule, of course, for car seats back in the day. No, you're right. You're right. My mother says <laughs> it's, it's a two-seater, obviously, for some of you who don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, the last year for the two-seat T-Bird. Um, my mother would sit me in the passenger seat. Obviously, I wasn't driving. Um, but she says one day she stopped and I rolled right off onto the floor. And it, it, wasn't a very, it wasn't a very big drop because, you know, it's a it's a fairly low car. But she said that was the last time that ever happened. Yeah. So, <laughs> I could imagine so. But, yeah. I can imagine so. You know, we had... Um, Jay Leno on the show. I grabbed him actually outside um, one of the auctions in Scottsdale, and I asked them the question that I'll ask you in a little bit. You could have any car you want. What's number one on the Jay Leno I want to get that car list? Oh, I don't know, because a lot of times you buy the story as much as you buy the car. You know, cars that maybe your dad had or something. I mean, I came home from the hospital in a 49 Plymouth, so that's not a very valuable car, but it just we had it till I was about seven. I always remember the, the wet smell of that mohair upholstery like a wet dog. It just whatever I get, hey, well, that smells like a wet dog. Then I feel I have to have a 49 Plymouth. I know it doesn't make any sense. I should see a therapist. Of all the cars Jay Leno has, to imagine where would you find a car like that? I mean, did you ever think of, uh, is, do you have a Thunderbird in your stable, so to speak? Uh, my personal stable, no. We have one in the uh, collection of the museum. It's a lovely uh, powder blue car. It's it's uh, own, was owned locally and then donated to us. Um, I would love, and actually I did try and find the car. Uh, my father kept um, excellent records of everything, and after he passed, I, I ran across a bill of sale that listed the uh, gentleman's address in Glendale. I went to the house. Uh, obviously, it well, meant not obviously because some people live, you know, a very long time in different places. But uh, uh, it was the, the individual was no longer there. The neighborhood had changed a bit, mm-hmm. and and time moved on. Yeah, trying to find a car like that would be difficult. I'd imagine. I mean, I've seen the Chevy ad. 
you know, the 65 Impala, the guy, his kids found it, but they hired a private detective, whatever it was. That would be hard to do today. I mean, if you wanted to find it. One thing about a 57 Thunderbird, those are more interesting to people than a lot of other cars are. And as it happens, I know the serial number, and it was on the bill of sale, and I carry it around with me. It's in my back pocket right Seriously. now. Seriously. I do. So if, if it ever happens, I run across a um, dusk rose-colored uh, Thunderbird, then I'll know, uh, break out the serial number and see, see, what, see what happens, see if it matches. Now, how great would that be if you found that car, if that still exists? That'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> that'd be pretty amazing. That'd be, uh, that'd be something to, uh, to, to, to take home. So as you were growing up, you what was the car you went to the prom in? <laughs> um, bit bit of a story. Sixty seven Lincoln Continental. Family car. Um, my my. <laughs> my <laughs> this my, sounds like a great story. Well, it is a little teeny bit of a story. Okay. Um, I have a sixty five Ford Falcon. Uh, my parents bought it brand new. In fact, I drove home from the dealership Peterson Ford in Encinitas, California. Uh, o N though, not E N. And um, it was my car all through high school and such. And I totaled it uh, the weekend before the prom. Prom was on a uh, Friday. I told it on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So I called my girlfriend. I said, um, gee, golly, um, you want to hear something funny? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't have a, I don't have a car to go. She goes, oh, that's all right. We'll take mine. So my girlfriend ended up driving us to the prom instead of me in her parents' 67 Lincoln Continental. I'm glad you said parents' 67 Lincoln Continental. I, I would have accused you of dating a 37-year-old woman or something like that. That's, but, <laughs> so that was a nice upgrade? Th- that was a nice upgrade. Sure. Sure. Why not? She got to do the driving, and <laughs> I got to talk cars the whole trip. Yeah, you didn't have to worry. That's that's actually kind of cool. So you moved on, and and was cars really what you wanted to do in life, or did you do something else in between? What I knew, I knew that I had to make a living doing something. And early on, I knew that it would have nothing to do with cars because at the time I didn't realize that you could make a living doing anything related to automobiles except maybe designing them. So I, I ended up getting a, um, a bachelor's degree and uh, ultimately an MBA, master's in business administration, and was a mortgage loan officer for about uh, eight or 10 years. And one day I just got tired of that. I said, you know what? I'm making the American dream true for every, come true for everybody but me. And as long as I'm not making it come true for me, I might as well not make it come true doing something I like. Mm-hmm. So I, I resigned my job. Uh, and that very day, I literally rolled up my sleeves, got into my Falcon, and drove to the San Diego Automotive Museum where I was a member. And I said, I'd love to volunteer. I've got a lot of time now. And the guy said, you see that picture? You know, they were, they were installing an exhibit, and I ended up helping, helping them hang it. Okay, now just to clarify, this isn't the Falcon you had originally. Yes, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah, so, I kept it. It was, I, I, I smashed it up pretty good. Okay. Uh, but it was in such good shape, the insurance company decided to fix it, and I, I, I still have it. I've retained it. To this day? To this day. For two-door or four-door? Two-door. Two-door post. It's a Falcon Futura. Wow. Top of the the line, man. But it had a post. Two-door post, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Didn't didn't they have a Falcon with a a hardtop Falcon, Mm -hmm. maybe 65? Yeah. Yeah. You could get it either way. Those were the days when you could pick and choose. You could get a two-door post. You could get a two-door hardtop. You could get a convertible 
Uh, and nobody cared really because it was a Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> not to diss your Falcon. I'm no, not dissing no. your Falcon. No, no, I'm just I get saying. it. It's an appliance. You well, know, it's... back then, those were obviously considered the economy cars. Those yeah. weren't, weren't weren't the ones you usually involved in plush cars, that kind of stuff. No, no. And, you know, I, that's great, and by the, the way, that you still own it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's a car, you know, if you, if you were to ask me what car, you know, from my past, would I try and find again? I'd say n- none because I've got it. That's mm-hmm. something I'd never let go of. That's great. That is really great. You eventually decided to volunteer at an auto museum, and did you anticipate them offering you a job? No, uh, I, I really didn't. I just enjoyed um, you know doing what I did. I helped out in the curatorial department. I helped organize things and document and and um, help you know straighten out their archives. And um, I said, "Why don't you guys you know hire me?" And they said. Oh, that's a pretty good idea. You know a little bit about this stuff. Yeah, let's try that. See how it works. And apparently it worked pretty good because then they offered me the position of curator after another three months. So it, it turns out they're, you know, that um, it's it, it, it worked out for me. Let's ask the question about uh, your personal cars. You told us about your Falcon. What else do you have in your garage right now? Um, I've got... <laughs> I have four vehicles. My daily drivers a a um, Volkswagen Jetta Sport Wagon, mm-hmm. uh, the Falcon. I have a '51 Dodge Wayfarer Sportabout, which is the two-seater convertible, uh, and I've got a 1955 Viking Craft Quarter Midget. That uh, maybe that qualifies as my first car because my father bought it for me when I was two years old. It's a little it's a little kind of a sidewalk uh, racer. It's got a one-cylinder Briggs and Stratton gas engine in the back and a fiberglass body it looks like a little ascot racer something i just used to drive around the drive around the driveway not quite pedal car but kind of like that size no no pedals uh but it was a little bit bigger than a pedal car i had to accommodate an engine which was in the back and and i still have that tell me the story about the wafer how did that come about well i read an article i've been a subscriber to automobile quarterly um since 1976 they're out of business now but um one of the um early issues they did an article on the dodge wayfarer and i was really i was just kind of taken with it for for no particular reason um and i thought this is interesting a a modern car modern relatively modern a post-war vehicle that the manufacturer said you know i'll bet we could sell some of these if they were only two seaters instead of four so they took out the back seat shortened the wheelbase and they made um a couple of versions. One actually did have a back seat, but the other two versions, the coupe and the what they called a roadster, because some of the models had snap-in side curtains. Um, and I thought, yeah, wouldn't that be cool? But I wanted 1951 because they're, you know, they're the most highly evolved <laughs> to the degree that you could be evolved in 1951. Mm-hmm. And ended up, they only made a thousand, uh, just over a thousand of them, which is made it the rarest Dodge, so it wasn't easy to find. And how and long did it take? I. I it took me until a year ago. I only bought it a year ago. Oh. I only found it. it was a, I had to tell you, it's the first one I ever saw for sale, and I, I jumped on it. And how long have you been looking? I had I, I had been actively looking, I'd say, probably six or eight years, you know, checking all the eBay ads and yeah. watching everything, just keeping myself aware of things. That, now, is that something that's similar, let's say, to a convertible version of the business coupe? Remember, the you know the business coupe was was the, was the two the one bench, and then of course you could raise the back and sleep, but if you it's, had to, out of the back and the it, whole thing. Exactly right, exactly right. A business coupe, uh, you know, it used to be just uh, a a full size American car that with just one front bench seat. That was it. 
uh, and then a large area um, behind the front seat for a traveling salesmen to carry product samples, which is why they call it a business group because it was intended strictly for business purposes. Mm-hmm. You carry all sorts of things. That's a cl- that's an interesting story because you know when I when I talk to people, I don't hear Dodge Wayfarer very often, so that's actually kind of neat. <laughs> I love it. It's it's banana yellow. I drive around it, you know, all the time. It's uh, you know. It's interesting. I like it. You know, I always wonder, you are so integrated with the car hobby. Um, you travel to seek cars. You do a lot of different things. A lot of us who do other things have classic cars as a hobby. Do you have a hobby that isn't classic cars? Um, I What I do to relax when I get home is read car books. <laughs> I have. Uh, I, I do that. I, I'm, a, I'm a collector. I'm a collector. I like. Um, uh, I have a library of maybe five or six thousand books at home. When something interesting comes out, I want it. And you know, it turns out it's 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 perfect because there's a lot of research. I have it right at my fingertips at home. If something you know strikes me, and I want to write about something. I sit down at the computer and I can pull out a book. I know a lot of people don't use books anymore, but I do. And and. It, it, fantastic resource. You can get information, you know, in a book you can't find, you know, about anywhere if you know if you know which one to pull out. Okay, so if you had to come home and you wanted to unwind and watch TV, what kind of TV do you watch? Um, I usually put on the news and and then mute it, <laughs> 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 just uh, <laughs> or play it really low, just because there's something, you know, just there's something going on in the background. Okay, I was thinking maybe you know like watch food shows or watch. Trash TV or watch mm. some sort of no you cars. Yeah, you and, can rule out food shows and trash TV. All right. Yeah. I'll do that right now. Not a lot of <laughs> cross that off. <laughs> all right. Cross that off my list. All right. I got it. Well, you know, I just thought it'd be interesting to see. What's your favorite book of a car book? My my favorite book and people are gonna think this is really weird and almost um um kind of counter to what I'm doing or I'm uh, it's called Auto Opium by David Gartman. It it it's really explains I think pretty well why people are so obsessed with cars, why some people are so obsessed with cars and and how that came to be. It doesn't explain a lot of the collectible uh world, but I think it's a really interesting treatise on on you know where we we got um to the position we are, how we got to the position we are today. Where everybody really seems to collect cars and really enjoy them? Is that kind of a No, deal? it really talks about um, why we buy certain cars new and what we think about our cars and why they're hot-rotted and where that and where that um, um, came from and, and, and where low-riding came from and, and those kinds of things. It's, it's kind of a um, sociological look. At really? The, at cars and car buying. Very interesting. So it's, it, it's an old book. It came out about 15 or so years ago, but I think uh, every, everybody has re- I've recommended it to has uh, seemed to have enjoyed it. And it's called? Auto Opium. Auto Opium. Check that out. Let us know what you think. Favorite car magazine? F- um, favorite car magazine? Um, it's uh, uh, a Peterson um, publication. Okay, aside from the one that. No, 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 no. But it's a Peterson publication. Okay, that, go ahead. <laughs> um, Auto uh, Autosport. Uh, it was a magazine that kind of came and went, but it it touched on all of the cars that I now am extremely fascinated with, including Bugattis. Okay, so when did you start expanding your horizons from American cars to cars from other countries? 
I don't think I ever really had to expand my horizons. I was always interested in everything. And the weirder it was, the more I liked it. You know, Pegaso, this car built in Spain from 1951 to 1957-ish, uh, I thought, wow, man, this is really cool. V8, double overhead cams per bank of cylinders, an optional supercharger. It's like, wow, who's not going to like this? And, you know, as it turns out, uh, I was the only one that knew about it. So I was the only one who knew, who knew to like it. So, but... But, hey, it was great. I loved it. And it's not a car you can actually acquire because there aren't very many at there, which means ka-ching, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Those are pretty highly desirable. Mm-hmm. You get a chance to travel all over the world, like I mentioned earlier. And I always wonder, and, I, and I've seen you at uh, Scottsdale for the auctions, I think, some years ago. I kind of tailed you and your predecessor there uh, as we went around looking at cars and I kind of followed you guys as you made decisions. You, you bought that, uh, uh, the first armored limousine, if I remember right. Right. 42 uh, Lincoln. Absolutely. Roosevelt's car. And I, I was fascinated by that just because the fact that it was available and just watch the process of how you bid and how you cajole and how you get that, get that done. Uh, is there one kind of auction place that you go to, to get those kind of cars or do you go to all of them and, and depending on what they have? Right now, um, we went to that auction. We were in, in that world more when Mr. Peterson was alive because he was actively acquiring. Um, uh, it, it, would be, it wouldn't be right for me to say we have everything we want now, but we have most of the tough stuff. Uh, there's a lot of things, though, make no mistake, that we're looking to acquire. I'd love to have a Miller for the collection, for example. I'd love to have an Alpha 8C. Who wouldn't? Um, but, you know, th- there are other things. But... Um, I keep I, I keep tabs on auctions just so I can see what's going on, what kind, what's interesting to people, because what's interesting to people at at an auction is also probably going to be interested uh, interesting to people at a museum. It's something they're going to want to see, and that's how you can help uh, track that. And find also you can find out who's buying the cars that you may want to display sometime. Leslie Kendall joining us here on Talking About Cars. We're talking about uh, not only his own private collection and some of the cars he's had, but uh, the way the Peterson Museum goes out and gets vehicles, which I I find kind of fascinating because sometimes you go to a Scottsdale or you go to some other place and you see just you get overwhelmed by so many cars. What is it that really attracts a museum to a certain car? Well, what attracts the Peterson Museum to a certain car is it the degree to which it relates to our mission, which is to explore and present the history of the automobile uh, and its impact on American life and culture, all in a Los Angeles context. So, and, and it actually allows us to collect quite a bit because so much stuff showed up in Los Angeles. I mean, quirky Eastern European cars. I mean, there was a Skoda dealership in L.A. I mean, who knew? Um, Where was that? Do you remember? Uh, Hollywood. Really? hmm Skoda dealership in Hollywood. Go to your nearest Skoda dealership if you want to, you know, buy a, a Czechoslovakian car, and okay. and you know your your dream can come true. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we we had our share of Delahays and Delages and Tabo Lagos, the great French classics. Uh, you know, we had our share. We had dual Gias here. We also had, you know, some pretty you know quirky stuff. You know, NSU Princes, the little tiny micro cars from the from the fifties. I remember growing up here. I lived over here off of La Brea, and I remember somebody, our neighbors, had a Vauxhall Victor for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and it's like good grief, you never see that Vauxhall in in the U.S. They left. I want to say pretty soon after that car showed up in, in the late 50s, and now they're pretty much all UK, but just the fact that 
those kind of cars showed up here and and people bought them. Well, you know, LA is a LA is an unusual place. LA, you wear your car as much as you drive it. It's like an outer layer of clothing you put on. What am I, you know, what car am I going to wear today? You're standing at your garage looking at your, you know, maybe you have a selection or maybe it's just, you know, choice between two. Uh and and it's you know however you're feeling what you're going to need to do um it just you know certain things come to play in your decision but it's it, you know it's a considered decision nonetheless one of the magazines i like i like watching collect or looking at collectible automobile because it gets into so many of the concept cars and it shows what your typical car we know about looked like in previous drawings and clay and the whole thing and and it, it, they show pictures that you just shake your head and go oh my god i'm so glad it didn't show up looking like that otherwise nobody would about it you have one of the most amazing concept car collections that i've seen and and how did that part of the um collection of the museum come about uh again uh, through mr peterson's genius he knew enough to buy these cars when they became available um you know we've got uh 1955 mercury d528 uh, a lot of people call it the Beldone because that's the name that it had when it was in a jerry lewis movie called the patsy uh, it was rigged by George Barris to do these quirky things, and Jerry Lewis, being Jerry Lewis, you know, interacted with it in his own way. Uh, we have a 1954 Plymouth Explorer, a uh, one-off concept car by Ghia. This is when Chrysler Corporation was having Ghia in Italy um, build a lot of their concept cars. Uh, we also have an incredibly rare car, not because it's a one-off, but because of how it came to be, uh, the one and only 1953 Dodge Storm Z250, uh, one-of-a-kind concept car from Dodge, body by Bertoni, uh, the only car, pardon me, the only Chrysler Corporation car I'm aware of during that particular era that wasn't body by Ghia was this one. And it was it was a, very quirky. The whole idea was you unscrewed four bolts, took the body off, uh, put a, t- pardon me, the heavy touring body off and put a, a lighter weight fiberglass body on, then went racing. If you could afford you know, the price of admission for a car like that, then you could afford a different racing car. So it didn't go over very well. You talk about all the connections to Hollywood and oh my, you guys have Hollywood cars there as well. I always wonder from your own personal thought, what was the best television show that featured a car in your opinion? Wow. That's a good one. Um, I think, you know, just, just for me growing up and when I was, you know, during my TV watching phase, um, I loved watching Magnum because I liked that Ferrari. You know, it was introduced uh, when I was in high school and I remember thinking, you know, that's not a bad way to get around town. I think Larry Minetti actually owned that car for a while. Very interesting. Uh, and we do too now. In the, it's One of them is in the collection of the Peterson Museum. And, I, re- I remember talking to him once about uh, something about the car, and he had said something along the line where he bought it from Mag- or from the company or something like that, and the sucker wouldn't start like 90% of the time, so he eventually... That's how you know it's a real one. <laughs> exactly. <That's, yeah. laughs> we, uh, we, we actually have on, on file a letter from Larry Minetti stating that he was the owner of this car. Really? So yeah, maybe we're talking about the same one. There, there were more than one, but uh, it's it's entirely likely. Okay, same thing for the movies. Best car movie. Wow. You know the best car. Mo- you know the car movie I liked a lot, and it's probably something nobody remembers. Um, uh, it's called The Lively Set. You're right. I don't. Remember it was it was set in the fifties, and the reason I liked it so much is because it features a 1963 Chrysler Turbine. And oh, the turbine car. Yeah, the yeah, turbine yeah. car. And, and you know, during those years, I loved the turbine car. And I th- anything that featured a turbine car, I was all about it. In fact, 
my very first oral report in school, it, it could be about anything I wanted, and it was about the Chrysler Turbine car. Now, if I remember, you know, you mentioned this, and all of a sudden it flashed back. It wasn't an Elvis movie, but it was like, what, James Darren was in it or somebody like that? Yeah, yeah. And it was involved a race of some yeah, sort? Yeah, a race through the Sierra Nevadas, and it was real dangerous. And That's right. <laughs> they were experimenting with this new technology, and it was just, you know, the little guy fighting against all odds. And it was kind of interesting. I mean, the plot was, like most of these movies, secondary to the, uh, to the characters, which is to say the cars. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And of course, Jay Leno has one, I believe. I, he does. <laughs> there aren't many in captivity, but he's 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 a lucky fellow. Yeah, no, he's he's taken it to some of the car shows in this area in Los Angeles. Uh, I belong to uh, Chrysler Performance West, so uh, um, he'll bring out a car every so often to those things, usually um, Airflow or something like that, whatever he has that's Chrysler. Well, we appreciate Jay so much uh, because he brings things to the mainstream. He's 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 a genuine enthusiast and a genuine historian, and you can have a a really good conversation with Jane. He really, he really knows his, his, his stuff. And he's not afraid to take his cars out and, you know, and talk to people about them. I, and, and I will uh, second that because he's come out to shows that I've been at. And he's come up to my car and he's asked me questions. And, you know, I'm on radio, so he may or may not know who I am. So it's like, okay, you know, he asked me questions. And it's great to sit there and just have these conversations about the vehicle. You know, 20 years ago, and that's about as long as you've been at the Peterson, right? Yeah, about 23. Okay. Back 23 years, rewind 23 years, the media landscape was different. There wasn't, I don't believe there was velocity. I don't believe there certainly wasn't, weren't any podcasts running around. Talk to me a little bit about how the changing landscape of media, if you will, and the way people get their car information has helped or maybe changed how you do the work at the Peterson as far as expanding the knowledge of what goes on. Well, we have so much knowledge instantly available now that we didn't before. If I want to reach, research something, of, of course you go on the Internet and you, you do that first. And I you know, obviously have books and, and magazines and, and resources like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's really opened it up. And also it helps you find cars a lot more easily than ever before. And, of course, I try to keep myself aware you can't find everything on the Internet. So, you know, I try to keep tabs of uh, auction results and where cars go and, you know, who's got what and... And uh, what collectors, you know, favor certain kinds of cars, that sort of thing. And the fact that so many guys nowadays that we just, we know of because of, again, I go back to Velocity and Discovery and all these other shows, you know, the Chip Fooses, the... um, the, the, the builders, if you will. Once upon a time, the car community, a tightly knit group, knew who these guys were, but nobody else did. Now, because of overhauling and, and because of the Wheeler Dealers and because of all those other kinds of shows that are um, chasing classic cars, you know, suddenly these people are personalities and the product they really are pitching are the cars that some would love to have on their own. And then, of course, that, I would imagine helps the museum get people to take a look Uh, cars are uh, i completely agree cars are one thing that everybody has in common whether we think we have cars in common or not we do it's something we we can relate to um and that's one of the things that we try to get across at the museum it's like you know um whether you think you do or not, you have a favorite car. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your rich person car all picked out. You know, pretty sure a lot of people do anyway. Uh, and and we go with that. 
you know, we, we, we tell, we tell that story saying, yeah, of course, you know, and this is some people interpret cars and, you know, in terms of performance and celebrity, some people interpret them in terms of their, um, uh, meaning to the uh, socioeconomic structure of the United States. I mean, there's just so many different ways. Everybody's got a car story, right? Some guy says that on podcasts. I believe that's me. But I've I, heard that. I've, I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> you know, I have been fortunate here in the most recently to uh, do some podcasts for uh, car stories. So I talked to Richard Varner, who's a member of the Peterson board, and he, of course, is involved with Moto America. And one of the interesting things he told me was, at the time, they were coming up with Moto America, and they wanted to put it on television so people could see it. They actually came up with a concept of a reality show for Moto America based on kids or drivers learning how to drive and eventually succeeding on the course. You know, when you changed the Peterson all around, did it ever come to mind to do something where you could do a reality show about the Peterson? It, it never, you know what, we didn't build a Peterson to be, um, you know, fodder for reality television. Um, but as it happens, uh, if a, a lot of people consider it such, uh, and we've been, you know, we've been approached. There are a lot of people trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, weave the Peterson museum into some kind of reality show context. And, um, the, the day has yet to come where, where that really happens. But uh, to me, it's interesting enough. I'd certainly watch it. But, uh, you know, then again, I'm not the <laughs> I'm not typical. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the reality show. Uh, that would be interesting, I think. All right. So you have cars. So I'm interested in kind of a, your side of this debate. Uh, recently, I've seen this more than, than ever, is the debate between having a car that's been restored and set all up and just looks gorgeous, like it was, you know, even better than driven off the assembly line, versus the original patina and the car that's been sitting, even if it's a barn find, for heaven's sakes, leaving it alone because it's original. Depends on the, depends on the car. If we're talking about a 19... 19- 25 stuts that somebody dragged out of a barn that's actually pretty nice it just needs to be cleaned up it'd really be a shame to restore a car like that um but then again if it was a 1925 stuts with that was completely rusted that the engine was missing components the top was it was gone the the upholstery was potato chips the leather was so dry uh, no tires up on jacks everything is bent you've got to restore that car to bring it back to some uh, semblance of what it was, but it, it, you know, it also depends on why the car is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of hot rods, you restore them to their best remembered configuration. You know, to restore a hot rod, well, to restore a 32 Ford, it would look like a 32 Ford, but that's not, that's not what that particular car is about. So you want to bring that car back to its, um, uh, its appearance during its most uh, important time in history. It's interesting to think about. I, I You started talking about cars that are rusted, and I immediately flash back for some reason to that thing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when they dredged that 57 Plymouth out of the <laughs> vault. Yeah. I mean, do you do you remember that? And oh, it, I it sure was, do. Oh, it, man. There were a lot of people were holding out a lot of hope for that car, and um, their hopes were unfortunately dashed. I thought it would have been really interesting to, to see that because nobody saved 50, 57 Plymouths or late 50s Plymouths. Uh, I mean, you know, the ashtrays got full. You got rid of them. There was nothing older, you know, in 1967 than one of those cars. The fins were gone. They were just, they were just pretty extreme looking, and and a lot they were they were shunned. Short of Christine, the movie. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 
Now that that's one I'd park in my garage, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that I, and again, go back to reality TV. I think I saw somebody trying to sell that somewhere along the line here in Southern California. The guy was trying to. He should have given it to you, or do you already have it? We don't. I'd love to add a Christine in our collection. Boy, would I! I think that'd be that'd be fantastic. I hope you're listening out there because you, the man has just offered you a great way to uh, showcase your car. That was a '50s Plymouth that I do remember from the late uh, '50s. That was so cool. Yeah, the, 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 those Exner tail fins on it, man, it was just like, it looks like it was rocketing through space. In fact, those are the only cars that um, Chrysler claimed, uh, that a- actually any manufacturer claimed the fins helped. They said it helped a couple of percent in crosswinds. So, Well, I, I just remember somewhere down the line, they had the 57s come out, and they were so radically different. And I believe the slogan was something like the uh, along the lines of, suddenly it's 1960, mm-hmm. but come 1960 they they had even more radical fins on it and somebody kind of cracked suddenly it's 1957 yeah yeah yeah, chrysler styling um got a little goofy (laughs) in the early 60s they were trying all kind of wedge shapes and all kind of trapezoidal grills and things like that and kind of you know goofy subtle fins uh that protruding from different places where you don't normally expect fins to be so we talked about your car collection um is there anything that and we've talked about what you'd like to put in the museum. Is there anything car-wise you'd like to add to your personal collection? Uh, you know what? Um, yeah, there are always things I like to have. You know, there are a few things I like. Um, I, I wouldn't mind owning a 1954 Nash Healey Le Mans Coupe. I think those are very, very pretty. Um, you know, if it's a kind of a you know gentleman's you know car to the degree I consider myself a gentleman. Um, I, you know, there are other things I like to have, I like to, a, a custom body post-war Fiat maybe. Um, I, I love a, uh, a, uh, you know, a, a pre-war, you know, grand classic from the pre-war era something like that. But then I think to myself, well, you again, you know, keep in mind, you're going to have to fix it cause it's going to break down. The warranty's up mm-hmm. a long time ago. So, True. so there's going to be that technicality and you've got to have space and you've got to have the talent. So, and you have to have the time. You know, I didn't ask, but are you, do you consider yourself a mechanical guy? Um, I I have more theoretical knowledge than I do a practical experience. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you how an engine works. Uh, I and I can probably you know be a pretty good mechanics assistant. I don't think I could take an engine apart by myself and put it back together and get it running. We have something in common on that. Yeah. No. 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 If somebody's not looking over my shoulder. It's it's just not going to happen. Give me your story about how you tried to work on something once and decided and learned the hard way that you probably should have left it to the professionals. Um, you know what I have to tell you is I never tried. Sorry, folks. I, I just I, it's something I, I knew my limits. I said it's this will not end well no matter how no matter what happens. <laughs> Uh, it's not that you know. It's not that I don't like to try things, or I'm a quitter, or I just give up before I even begin. But uh, I'm a guy that, in that sense, knows his limits, and it's something I've just never tried. As we round it up here, and, and again, thanks for joining us. We, uh, I, I'm curious where you envision the Peterson going in the next several years. Um, I think it's very difficult to come out and say specific things, but what we need to do is to continue, I think, what we're doing now, and that's staying relevant. Keep our, you know, our fingers on the pulse of society, find out what's interesting to people. Museums exist to do only three things, collect, preserve, and interpret. And we do those things in a local context, and we do it better than than anybody else. But in order to 
stay uh, the best that you have to you have to be very very aware of what's going on around you um, what's what, what's happening with museums how museums are reaching people how and how museums um, stay relevant and who's to say we're not you know we didn't know we were 20 years ago that we were going to look like this and who says 20 years from now we're going to look completely different if if that's what it's if that's what's needed to stay relevant my hunch is we're going to do it i think we have a board with a tremendous vision and a tremendous passion and um, no fear and if you have a car that maybe you guys would like because you said you you actually have people who call up and offer you cars. You know, there are a lot of things that we are still looking for. I and mean, we don't have everything. You know, sometimes things are important for what they're not. I would love a Pinto for the collection or a Vega. You know, people look at me cross-eyed and you know, they think, really? And yeah, they were really important to early 1970s, you know, American car companies. They're incredibly important. But they have to be in decent shape. Well, they have to be in decent shape. They have to be represented of their type. Um, so, you know, to the degree that that's okay, I don't expect to find a Pinto with you know, very low miles, but although I've heard they exist, I'm sure there are Pintos out there with delivery mileage. I mean, you know, Lord knows they made enough of them, so I'm sure a couple escaped. (laughs) Peterson Auto Museum curator Leslie Kendall. Now, if you're in the L.A. area, don't forget you have to visit the museum here along the Miracle Mile and visit the Peterson online at peterson.org. In fact, if you want more about the Peterson, listen to our Talking About Cars number 45 with Dennis Gage, and also I talk with Leslie and others as we previewed the remodeled Peterson Museum. Again, if you're listening on iTunes, number one, subscribe. It's free. You'll automatically get notified when a new show uploads. Then rate us and write a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us, follow us, and then tell your car pals and fellow club members about all the great guests and cool stories we have on our award-winning Talking About Cars podcast. And now, check out our videos with our partners at Generation Auto. Check out Talking About Cars on YouTube. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.